In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Greg Menefee is our guest this week on Money Tales. When he was growing up, Greg's perception was that his family was just as well off as any other. Greg was an avid skier, and one year his dad promised him a new pair of $300 skis for the upcoming season. As that season drew closer, the skis never materialized. Greg ultimately mustered the courage to ask his mom about them. It was in that moment that his childhood perception crumbled, and Greg learned that his family didn't have $300 to spare for the skis. As Greg tells us, the skis didn't really matter to him, but the situation created a money conflict between his mother and father that became a recurring theme. This shaped Greg's approach to money, making him more risk-averse and changing how he discusses financial matters. Let me tell you more about Greg. He serves as Senior Vice President of Relationship Management at Orion Advisor Tech. A self-proclaimed client experience fanatic, Greg brings over two decades of expertise in helping advisors think differently about creating incredible client experiences for their clients. Here are three key money topics Greg hits on in this conversation. First, how he and his wife productively ping-pong money conversations back and forth to reach important financial decisions together. Second, how his primary money goal is to earn as much as he can to bless as many people as possible without impacting his time and relationships with his family. And third, how he's overcoming the money messages of his youth and learning to take financial risks. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Greg Menefee. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammy, we spend a lot of time on Money Tales talking about the importance of talking about money. We do. <laughs> it's so important. So many great things happen as we've explored mm-hmm. over many, many episodes of these conversations, allowing you to really form your opinions, your thoughts, your feelings about money, get them out in the open, learn from the people that you're talking about money with, and really grow and develop yourself from there. One aspect of money conversations we haven't talked about just yet is the ethical nature of money conversations. Can talking about money be an ethical situation? What do you think? Well, this came up because my husband reads The Ethicist in the New York Times often on Sunday mornings. He brought up an ethicist article that he had read sometime back about a person who was married who had kept from their spouse the fact that they were drawing a $25,000 per month distribution from a trust that the spouse had no knowledge of. 
And the person who reached out to the ethicist was wondering, gosh, do I need to tell my wife? This is so awkward. We've been married for something like eight or 10 years. It was some long period of time. Am I violating the ethics of our marriage by not having told my spouse about this money? And I guess they fronted it with a, oh yeah, I get some consulting income sort of rough story. Oh, this is super interesting. What did the writer recommend? Well, the ethicist did recommend a big <laughs> idea to open up the conversation with the spouse. But I thought that was really interesting because I've never really thought about talking about money in terms of ethics. I know it can be a hard thing for some people to talk about. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in money. Sometimes there's feelings of wanting to avoid judgment, right? That's why some people choose not to talk about money. They don't want to be judged for having it or not having it. And there's so much to unpack. So much. The ethicist, according to my husband, I haven't actually like pulled it up to read the article, but they had suggested having an open money conversation was the way to go. So of course, that warmed my heart. Does I want to now talk to this person because there's reasons behind that, you know, that at face value, you don't want to assume they were hiding something. Maybe there were good reasons. And then it by not talking about money, this now becomes bigger and bigger and bigger with time. Oh, my heart feels heavy for him. Yeah. So talk about money more. It's the ethically correct thing to do. <laughs> and very freeing. Well, let's welcome our guest today. Greg Manafee, welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Greg, would you share with us an introduction and in that provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that has really impacted who you are today? Sure. Before we jump into that, the prior conversation, I can't help but jump in. Did you say $25,000 a month? A month. Woo. Hard to hide that money. That adds to the complexity, right? Because you have to become more crafty into where you put $25,000 a month. And I guess if the rest of the salary that's coming in is really, really large, then maybe they don't just notice that you're able to purchase a new Mercedes every single year. But that is absolutely not the case in our household, which we can dive into. And to your point, Cammie, I couldn't handle that stress of keeping yeah. something like that. And you know, I was able to sit through two or three courses of Peter Conti Brown's out at Wharton, who's a master when it comes to ethics and teaches ethics there. And I remember him saying something to the effect of ethics is in everything, mm. everything you do, every part of your life, it is involved inside of that. And absolutely, I would agree that from a money perspective, it's a large part of how people should be thinking about it, or they might be and just don't realize that that's controlling some of their decision-making when it comes to finances. But to get back to the intro, hi, Greg Menefee. I've been in the financial services industry for, gosh, I guess a little over 25 years. I've worked at a couple of the major custodians and now a fintech organization or wealth tech organization. But I've never really sat down with somebody outside of my wife and talked about money. And it's something that the more I've thought about it and leading up to, to today, is shaped and impacted a lot of decision-making in my life, actually quite a bit, even career decisions that I've made and career opportunities that I haven't shot for earlier in my career were largely impacted based upon how I viewed finances from my childhood. But I guess I have one vantage point that I can probably share today that might resonate hopefully with a few people out there. 
Greg, you introduced this importance of childhood, and that's where we always start because it really creates a foundation. Some good, some bad, depends on the situation. Would you share with us a little bit more about your childhood and especially when money started having meaning and how that all came about? Sure. From my childhood perspective, I grew up in a somewhat affluent area in Austin, Texas. Money was something that my parents didn't talk to me about. And I talk rather frequently with my children. They're 10 and 13 now. And that's probably a byproduct of my childhood. But we didn't talk about it. And it felt like at times that we had it. And then it felt like at times we didn't. I grew up in the type of house where my father might roll up with a new boat behind a Bronco. This actually happened. And uh, my mom didn't know about it until it was parked out in front of the house. I lived in a house where purchases like that might take place without there being a conversation between both parties, you know, my mother and my father. And my mother was a little bit more prudent when it came to things like this. And that created stress, stress that as a young child, I could recognize. And to the degree at times, the type of stress that you could hear from downstairs, let's just say. I guess if I'm being really transparent about it, and that's kind of how the way I lead to and operate in the business world, it worried me. It concerned me. I remember I'm living in an affluent area, going to the high school or the middle school with the kids whose parents were picking them up in Mercedes and going on the church ski trips and stuff of that nature and feeling like we're fine. And then I remember one time my father had made a, uh, I, I can't remember, it was like, if, if you accomplish X, Y, and Z, I'll get you a new pair of skis for when you go on this ski trip. And a pair of skis back then probably cost $300. It wasn't that much. And I remember we were getting closer and I was all excited. And my best friend who I would go skiing with, his parents had a ski home in New Mexico. I was jazzed up talking about, I'm going to get these skis. And we're looking at K2s and rosin dolls and all these different things. And then talking to my mom about it. And why haven't we pulled this trigger yet? And then my mom eventually telling me, your dad does not have $300 right now to spend on a pair of skis. I thought that might be in his pocket. And it was kind of the first time that it became apparent to me that we are not living the same way as, as everybody else is around here. I think it scared me as a kid. It wasn't so much that I did not grow up in a household where it was about what you wore and what you drove and stuff of that nature, but I was surrounded by it all the time. And when you, you get kind of caught up or, or you're around that environment, you start to feel like at times that you might be a part of it. And then when you recognize that you're not, you know, it was a little bit of a, an eye opener, but I don't think that any of that really mattered as much to me as the conflict that it created within the home, just between my mother and my father from time to time. These things would arise, they would blow up. I could hear it. There was yelling. And it shaped me as a father. It shaped me as a husband. It's shaped me as a professional. It's changed my outlook on money quite a bit. Tell us more about that shaping. Thank you, by the way, for being so transparent in sharing your situation. I too grew up in a household like that where money arguments were loud and more frequent than I would have liked. So I'm curious, how did it shape you as you were growing up and becoming your own independent person? I became more risk averse. Absolutely became more risk averse. In fact, I've made some financial decisions in the last several years that we can get to here in a second that an advisor would have kept me from doing. So I'll turn 49 in two weeks. I'm driving the fourth car I've ever driven in my life. I now run this one right into the ground, just like I've run the other ones. I take care of them and get the regular schedule oil changes, but 
I recognized early on that's a depreciating asset, pretty quickly going to depreciate, and I don't need to have the fancy car, and so I'm not going to go out and buy it. And so choices like that, I've said that to friends before, and they're like, I had four cars before I was 30. It shaped how I spent money. My wife would tell you that when I get passionate about something, I'll go all in. But outside of that, I don't. We just remodeled this home as part of the conversation that we'll get to. But when I was in a previous life as a leader and had 35 folks that were in my, my small organization, actually prior to that, I had, let's call it 12. Of the 12, probably 10 of them had a nicer home than I did. We lived in a condo when we got married in Boston that we could just afford. When it came time, we had our first child. We had a newborn, a dog, a cat in 600 square feet in Boston, Massachusetts. And when we went to go to try to figure out how are we going to find more space, we recognized it's going to double my commute on a commuter rail coming in to purchase a home that was built in 1909 that we can't afford anyways. And so we chose to relocate actually down to Texas based upon the fact that I don't want to take on debt because I grew up in a home that had a lot of debt. You fast forward to right now, we relocated to Northwest Arkansas. That's a whole other podcast. I could talk about six hours on that topic. But uh, we got into mountain biking during COVID and we discovered the mountain biking capital of the world's being built in Bentonville, Arkansas. And we decided we're going to take a leap of faith and we're going to move here. Actually, prior to that, we bought what we thought was going to be an investment property, uh, Airbnb here in, in Bentonville. They rent like crazy. So this was financial decision mistake, probably number one. Interest rates were nothing. So this is three and a half-ish years ago. Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I put more than 50% down on the property because in my mind, I thought, I don't want to owe anybody anything. I want to pay for this thing. It'll rent every nickel that comes out of that rental is going to go back into paying down the mortgage where it will double up our payments. We'll own this thing outright in no time. And then we decided we wanted to relocate and move here. And so we moved into that home. And it took us a full year to find our next house. And then we decided to remodel that home. And that took a whole other year. When I purchased the home I'm sitting in right now, again, I put better than 50% down on the home because I don't want to owe anybody anything. And the reason I made those decisions, and I wish now I had more of that cash sitting in liquid in the bank, is because of my childhood. I want to be scot-free. I don't want to owe a nickel to anybody. But as you all know, in the industry you're in, having a little debt's okay. Financing something, especially at interest rates where they were, is a, a lot better than now needing cash to do whatever you might need to do. It's always the balance. You got to be able to sleep at night, but you also have other goals to accomplish. And yeah, you got to make those decisions. You mentioned that really you've only have money conversations with your wife. And you've had all these moves and redoing homes and children, many opportunities to have money conversations with your wife. Would you share a little bit about that and how you two go about having productive money conversations? When you just added the word productive, you should have kept that <laughs> word out of there. And, uh, my wife and I, we are a ping pong couple. I joke about that where we ping pong an idea back and forth, but we don't sit down at the kitchen table and say, all right, let's talk about this. We decided to make the move here on a Wednesday on a whim. And it was just over a phone call. And I was like, do you want to do this? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, let's just do it. And that was it. That was the decision-making process. And we've never been happier. That doesn't sound risk averse. Me neither. By the way. I agree. 
Well, I think when you know something's right in your heart, you know it. And we knew. We had spent the entire summer here. And so it wasn't as if it was just a total, like on a trip, we decided that we were going to move. We kind of recognized that this is where we needed to be. But money conversations, getting back to you know childhood, I don't truthfully like to have them. When you live frugal enough for you know 20 years of your professional career, you don't have to worry about it as much because you've been accumulating wealth. And so when I say I've been on four cars and somebody's on their 10th, that money that they spend on those cars, I'm able to apply to an Airbnb in Northwest Arkansas You know, at the time. And when I mentioned that if I find something I'm passionate about, I want to be able to go all in. You know, my son's biking took off. They went from riding no bikes. I mean, my kid was on a Spider-Man bike to last weekend, we were at a bike park and my 13-year-old hit a 37-foot gap jump. Jeez. To give you an idea. Yeah, they've accelerated to that point. Wow. He's riding an $8,500 bike. He got it when he was 12. That's because if I have a passion about something, I'm going to put my kids in the best possible situation that they can be. But I want to be in a position to purchase something like that and not worry about it. And that you know, was shaped by my childhood of not making rash purchases, not splurging on myself. We don't wear fancy clothes. We don't have all of those things. We've waited a little bit longer in life to maybe enjoy some of the accumulation in buying this other home. And so productive money conversations, it's more of us having a, is this something that we feel like we can afford? Yes. Does it make the most sense? Yes. Do we feel led in that direction? Yes. Let's do it. Let's just go for it. But we don't own a boat. Those types of things, just they don't factor into our equations. Are bikes really nice? Yes. But that's about it. I'm wearing a shirt I bought three years ago. Greg, what I'm hearing in this conversation is that you and your wife are aligned on being people who make money decisions based upon your values and your passions and what's most important to you. And that that's what brings you joy and fulfillment. And that otherwise, if something falls outside of that realm of importance, then you're fine not spending money on it. Yes. I want to go back though, to the purchase of the homes and financing it with 50% debt, because you did mention earlier that you had some regret about that. And I'm having a hard time squaring that regret with this values-driven approach that you guys are taking. Every now and then life presents you with a unique opportunity. We got presented with a unique opportunity in an exploding real estate market. I read some article, the real estate market in Bentonville in Northwest Arkansas was the largest increase in the country to give you an idea of how many people are flocking here. So real estate got crazy to the degree that we offered $70,000 over asking on a house and didn't get it. And I said, that's it. I'm out. I'm not going to overpay for a property that I don't want. But this unique situation presented itself, but we decided we had the four mic counters in our previous home and it worked for us. We didn't care. And, you know, let's not do that this go around. So we decided we're going to remodel it and we put a couple six figures into it. When that cash, right, that's sitting in both properties isn't as available, well, then you start making financial decisions a little bit differently. And again, I don't want to owe anybody. So we didn't, I'm not taking a loan out to remodel this house. If I can afford to put in a fancy fireplace, then I can afford it. But that's it. I'm not going to borrow to do that. Would I have put 50% down on the first home purchase? Maybe not. Interest rates were nothing. 
It was almost like free borrowing of money, especially if you're going to convert it into an Airbnb and it's going to start producing money. Had I had one of you sitting across the table from me saying, hey, hold on here, let's think about this, I might have made a different decision. I believe in the services that advisors provide. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of it. I think the thing that I tricked myself into is I've been working in the financial services industry my entire life. Why would I need an advisor? And that was a mistake. And I have no problem saying that was a mistake. Some of these things that we have done, they haven't been, I mean, we'll get all this money back. I could sell this house tomorrow for more than we put into it. But I would have liked to have had a little bit more coaching and counseling leading up to that. This gets back to the whole money conversation thing. Like there's a good chance that the reason why I have not really talked about money with my spouse, like we don't sit down and discuss the finances and stuff like that because I just don't want to be around it. It brings back memories of childhood where that was a difficult thing. You also mentioned, Greg, that you intentionally approached parenting to be more forthright around money conversations. Yes. Would you tell us more about how you're doing that with your boys? Sure, sure. So, I mean, once they could start to understand the concept of money, then I have no problem talking to them around the economics of an Airbnb. My kid knows how much his bike cost. And one of the things that I've shared with them is he's driving the Mercedes AMG of bikes. When you go to resell an AMG, you get a good portion of it back. If you don't, if you buy an affordable one, you don't. Nobody wants the bike. Kids grow at an astronomical rate. So he's already on his second bike, both of them. And it's an expensive sport. So I want to put them on equipment that makes the most sense for their riding capabilities, which is off the charts. I bought my child's first bike when he was 10 for $2,000 and I sold it for $1,600. So I'm essentially leasing really nice bikes to put them into. So I've discussed this with them. Like they understand the economics behind that. My son, who's 13, by the time he was 12 years old, he already owned a gas-powered lawnmower, leaf blower, edger, power washer, hole saw. I did not allow him to get a chainsaw. Threw you the line, huh? What was he doing with this? He wanted to earn money. His Christmas ask was a leaf blower. His birthday was a pole saw. And grandmas and grandpas and us, we've given him these things because he wants to earn money. But one of the things that I try to help him understand is gasoline costs money. Your equipment, you have to take care of it. You have to purchase oil. The job that you did for that person that cost $100, well, guess what? Your leaf blower was $350. You're not there yet. You're not making money. Now, these things were gifted to you, but on down the road, as you want to establish a business, everything that goes into the business, you have to recognize You've got to earn that back before you're making money. And so we have conversations about things like this. And then we try to help them to see that I am that dad that is when I was your age. <laughs> it's hard not to do that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. We all do it. Yeah. And so they live in a nice home and there's a pool in the backyard. And that's why we try to ensure that we're blessing others. And that's something that's important to us, you know, getting back to the ethical side of the conversation. We love entertaining. The coolest thing about that Airbnb for me was the romantic idea that friends of ours who can't afford to take a big family vacation can use it for free. What a gift. And that's exciting for me. 
that's money I want to spend and I want to invest. Do we own a home that's just for us in a ski town? There's nothing wrong with that, but we don't. So we're trying to teach the children, hey, it's not ours to begin with, and it's all going to go away at some point in time. Let's make sure that we're taking care of others with that. And then the same thing holds true with they each have uh, UTMA accounts that I have seeded because I've talked to them about home purchasing and how hard it is when you get out of college and then try to purchase your first home. And I've even explained to them, at some point, you're going to have access to this. You got to make the right choice that you're not going to blow it on an expensive car. And that the purpose of you having this account, and I've talked about the securities that are in it, they get to a point where when they get out of college that they can purchase something and have a down payment for something. And I've talked to them about the economics of if you have a roommate. If you are able to put a down payment on a property and then get a roommate and that roommate pays for your mortgage, well, then you're that much further ahead. And guess what? Diamond rings are expensive. And guess what? All these things that are going to come in your 20s, they're going to cost money. So let's figure out how can you start to build wealth now to account for that. Greg, what wonderful financial parenting. Your children are very lucky. As you look forward in your life, how do you want your relationship with money to be? I don't really want to have one. That's kind of the goal, right? I want to earn as much money as I can to bless as many people as I can. My family first and then everybody else. And that's it. And if we cannot worry about when I'm 60 years old, buying another $8,000 e-bike, then we've done all right. And that's the goal. That comes back to something that I mentioned from a professional perspective. I had a uh, gentleman who was a president of a division at a, a custodian I used to work at take me to lunch one day. And he said, I believe that you can be one of the best salespeople that we have and make a tremendous amount of money. And he ran sales before he became the president. And the hair in my arm stood up. I believe he's right. But at the same time, there was a part of me that was like, that's too much risk. That's eat what you kill environment we're talking about. And immediately, anytime I would, this is, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, I would think about this. I would think about my upbringing and the home that I was in. And I was like, I can't handle that kind of stress for my family. At the end of the day, I don't know. Was there an opportunity maybe that I was missing out on by, being adverse to that type of risk when I was as competitive as it gets on the soccer field, on the golf course, anywhere in sports. But when it came to money, I was not. And I think part of that also comes back to just being a servant leader. I'm more interested in getting the people that I'm serving as a leader paid more money than I am for me. I think I've asked for a raise in my career like once. Probably should do that more often. (laughs) I'm so glad you're raising this topic around taking risks. Because if you're letting your son jump 37 feet on a bike, you're obviously comfortable with risk. But there are some risks in life. For you, it's around money. There's a awareness that you have that you're not comfortable. And I think that's a really important thing to know about yourself. And I'm curious if it's something you've seen evolve over the years. And have you done anything to evolve it to change it because you wanted a different approach? Yes. There was a point in my career, it was probably my early 30s, when I was doing some reflection. And I remember joking with a leader that I used to work for that I loved and respected a lot. And I said, why is it that my ideas are not good ideas until we end up doing them two years later? (laughs) 
And I ended up taking that to my mentor and talking to my mentor about it. And he said, well, how passionately are you talking about it? And who are you talking to about it? It was a good wake up call. And I remember thinking, you're right, because there's a piece inside of me that's saying, if I walk right into the CEO or the president's office and suggest this, and it is a bomb, what happens to my employment? Is there a chance that it could negatively impact that? So there's been times earlier in my career where I wouldn't say something. I've gotten beyond that. Am I walking into the CEO's office? Not yet, but I am being a little bit louder about certain ideas and things. I probably have had times in my career where I have not spoken up because of those things that were going on in my childhood. This is probably part of the reason why I came to meet you and I've maybe talked about this back in the, when we were talking about client experience. I'm so passionate about Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, because when you create an environment within the workplace where people feel they can be vulnerable and they don't have that fear of conflict, then they're more willing to come out and share ideas that they might have. And I've always preached to the teams that I've served, hey, the next best idea we have as an organization might be in your head. It doesn't matter what level you are in the organization. So speak up. Let's talk about these things. My guess is, is that I was probably a little bit more reserved in some of these things earlier in my career based upon uh, those things that I experienced as a child. Well, Greg, vulnerability is not a problem for you today. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all these great money stories with us. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? There's an active one going on right now. The street that we own our Airbnb on, behind it is acres and acres and acres of forest with a 50 miles of professional mountain biking trail. I purchased the lot in between the only two homes on the street. The other owners we know because we lived in that Airbnb while we were doing all the work on this home, and they're very great people. They are thinking about selling their home. There's part of me that, that likes the idea of monopoly where I can own the street. <laughs> but the practicality part of it is because I own the lot in between the two, which is completely wooded, I have created access trail to the biking network. I can connect their home to that too. And it becomes another Airbnb gym. The cash that would be freed up for me to go and buying that house is tied up in these other two homes. And I don't want to take on debt to the degree that I ever have any stress if everybody decides the economy goes in the wrong direction and that they're not going to vacation in Bentonville, I don't want to carry three mortgages. The money conversation that is going on in our home right now is, do I purchase this property? And anybody that's going to be listening to this, they're all going to have their own opinions. So this might be the fun part of the story for them, right? <laughs> I could purchase this in a rollover IRA that I have. I've been doing the research. Fixes to the home has to come out of that you cannot use it as a second property. You can't let your friends stay there. You know, all the rules and regulations. I can comfortably do this and this be an asset that sits inside of that. So my wife and I are having conversations about that. Do we just buy it outright in the rollover IRA and it sits there as one asset that's inside of this particular account? So it's been a stressful couple of weeks because when the neighbors told us, all right, I think we're going to sell it. I told them in the first week I met them, if you ever decide you want to sell the house, could you please let us know? Because we might be interested in purchasing it. And then this remodel, as most remodels go, got way out of control over budget. 
So from a liquidity perspective, could I make it work and sell my kids bikes? Probably, but uh, you don't want to go that route. So that's the money conversation that's going on right now in our home. We're going to have to have you back for episode two to find out what (laughs) happened with Greg's and his wife's decision. Oh, Greg, such wonderful stories and sharing. Would you tell our listeners where's the best place for them to find you? I guess it would be on LinkedIn, just Greg Minifee on LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, thank you again. It was wonderful to have you on the Money Tales podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was therapeutic. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.